This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media's Midweek Podcast. I'm Michael Lowinger. Former president, current candidate Donald Trump is back in the news with more incendiary comments about Russia. The former president told his supporters yesterday that he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want to any NATO member country that did not meet its spending obligations. And he compared his own legal woes to the trials of recently deceased Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. I got indicted four times. I have eight or nine trials, all because of the fact that I'm, I know this, all because of the fact that I'm politics. It's a lot it of, is a, lot a of form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. And then in a Fox Town Hall, he praised Russia for being a war machine. They defeated Hitler. They defeated Napoleon. You know, they're a war machine. But Trump's Russia suck-uppery is not unique to him. Not long after Putin launched the war in February 2022, far-right conservatives and white nationalists gathered in Orlando, Florida for the America First political conference. There, its founder Nick Fuentes, whose white supremacist YouTube channel was suspended in 2020 for hate speech, questioned diversity in America. You know, they say about America, they say diversity is our strength, you know. And I look at China and I look at Russia. Can we give a round of applause for Russia? On the messaging app Telegram, Fuentes referred to Putin as my czar. On the conservative Christian radio show Crosstalk, far-right activist and QAnon supporter Lauren Witzke, who ran against Delaware Senator Chris Coons in 2020, tied Putin's nationalism to his Christian identity. Russia is a Christian nationalist nation. So, you know, I actually support Putin's right to protect his people and always put his people first, but also protect their Christian values. I identify more with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Senator Mitt Romney had some choice words at the time for his colleagues Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar for attending Fuentes' far-right conference. I'm reminded of that old line from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie where where one character says, morons, I've got morons on my team. And I have to think anybody that would sit down with white nationalists and speak at their conference was certainly missing a few IQ points. To mark the two-year anniversary of Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we revisit Brooks' interview with investigative journalist Casey Michelle about the appeal of Russian autocracy for a certain breed of right-wing zealot. You have elements of white nationalists, you have elements of far-right organizations in the United States, prominent far-right voices. I mean, this kind of hodgepodge of right-wing or hard-right groups that all coalesced, certainly by the mid-2010s, into supporting Putin and his expansionism, and we still see evidence of that today. One of the oldest is probably Pat Buchanan, a former speechwriter for Richard Nixon. I think you've called him an intellectual flag-bearer of (laughs) paleoconservatism. He said in the culture war for the future of mankind, Putin is planting Russia's flag 
firmly on the side of traditional Christianity. Certain moments do stick out to you as kind of signal flares about where things are going. And Pat Buchanan asking out loud, is God now on the Kremlin's side? And if so, should American evangelicals, should the American right be supporting Moscow over Washington, supporting Russia over the U.S.? Richard Spencer, a white supremacist, has described Russia as the sole white power in the world, although it isn't because it's multi-ethnic like we are. You know, one of the great ironies in following all these white nationalistic figures and, and their overweening support for Putin, lusting after this kind of strongman type in Washington is, you know, they have a very particular view of Russia and of Putin in particular. He is a white, masculine, Christian, European leader. You know, they don't usually refer to him as a dictator, but that's obviously what they see him as, pushing back against same-sex marriage, pushing back against any kind of expanded understanding of notions like gender identity. They do not understand that Russia is this remarkably diverse country with great numbers of ethnic and religious minorities. I think they have this image that Russia is a white man's paradise for them without actually realizing what it's like on the ground in Russia itself. You write that David Duke, the uh, former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the KKK, has said Russia is the key to white survival and that other far-right figures should go there to better learn how to grow their movements here. David Duke lived in Russia for a number of years, and we still have very little idea of what he was actually doing over there. We know that his book, this incredible racist tract, was sold in the Duma bookstore, the bookstore for the Russian Parliament, but we still don't have any idea about the kinds of connections he made, the kinds of potential funding that he received, in addition to all these other white nationalistic figures whose links were still beginning to kind of sift through to figure out how some of these groups may be involved in ongoing interference efforts here, certainly in, in 2016, but by no means limited to that election. I think David Duke is symptomatic of the hard right Christian nationalist white supremacist contingent over the past two decades, gravitating to, of all places, the Kremlin, which is such a kind of whiplash from where things were yeah. during the Cold War, obviously, when the Soviets were around. I mean, it is a 180 that I still haven't wrapped my mind around. You spoke to Cole Park, an LGBT researcher with Political Research Associates, who told you it's difficult to say who's inspiring whom, but uh, there's a lot of cross-fertilization, it seems, going on. These are mutually reinforcing dynamics. You have those in the United States that are watching this incredible demographic change take place. They're watching, in 2008, the election of the country's first black president. They're watching things like same-sex marriage become legalized and beginning to search out other sources of inspiration and support for what they see as traditionalist values. While in Russia in the late 2000s and early 2010s, you have the consolidation of power in Moscow. You have any kind of dreams of broader democratization falling away. You have the return of Putin to the presidency in 2012. And all of a sudden you see these elements of this outreach looking for broader kind of fertile audiences to spread Moscow's message. And what we see taking place, especially by the early 2010s, is this kind of activation of these different networks targeting American white nationalists, far-right separatists and secessionists, American evangelicals. And all of a sudden, you begin looking into these interpersonal linkages, these organizational linkages, funding linkages and funding mechanisms to specifically groom and hopefully activate these white nationalist contingents in the United States to sow chaos, to lead to potential bloodshed, and if Putin would have his way, potential state fracture in the United States itself. Again, remember, you know, Putin very much blames the United States of America for the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fragmentation into 15 new countries. 
As to when all this began, you say it was the late 2000s and the early 2010s that were an inflection point. And of course, you can't underestimate the impact on these extremists of having a black president. I mean, this is exactly where Donald Trump emerges from. Trump rose to political prominence, claiming that Obama was born outside of the United States. It's this broader rubric of racist, racialist pushback against the way that the country is going. And into the breach, these Russian-funded figures and organizations step certain oligarchs, networks, organizations, reaching out and building bridges to Americans on the far right and the hard right, and building these kinds of... They call it the traditionalist international, building this broader movement to a greater degree than they probably ever thought. And you've said that at a 10,000-foot level, the goal of the Christian white nationalists here is to find and elect a Putin-style figure with a similar political dynamic to unify various Christian nationalist groups. It is as clear as day that these organizations and groups and networks would like nothing more than to have, whether it's Donald Trump or some other similar figure, in power in the White House. If they can't get their way, they're willing to lead separatist or secessionist movements and do what they can to, if nothing else, throw sticks in the spokes of America's broader democratic experiment of alliances and of the West's broader efforts to push back against things like the aggression we are now seeing out of Moscow and all the bloodshed in Ukraine. You've also written that the white nationalist Matthew Heinbach He's the head of the traditionalist Workers' Party, considers Putin to be the leader of the free world, and seeks to create a global network called Traditionalist International. What is that, and how hypothetical is it? Thankfully, we are a long way away from the realization of the traditionalist international. But the fact that we do see support for it in the United States, in Europe, and certainly out of Moscow is something that we have to continue watching. At the end of the day, it's exactly what we've been talking about. It is the entrenchment of Putinist-style regimes in Washington, Ottawa, London, Brussels, and elsewhere. Okay, so let's talk about what happened in 2015. The leading lights of Europe's far right, including members of Austria's Freedom Party, people from Sweden, Netherlands, Austria, the UK, mm -hmm. they got together in Petersburg. You say this meeting was one of the most notable gatherings of Europe's xenophobic far right, but was it significant? It was, again, one of these kind of signal flares where you realize that there is far more organization, there is far greater depth to these networks than would seem at initial blush. You know, usually these organizations, they operate in a domestic context. You don't see these international gatherings, anything like this magnitude, except once in almost in a generation. And that just so happened to be in 2015 in Russia, in St. Petersburg. These groups didn't come back to Washington or come back to Athens or come back to Oslo and all of a sudden begin implementing legislation. But one of the things that we have seen time and again out of Russia is an ability to build these bridges across Europe, across North America. Brooke, I don't think it's any surprise that while that conference was happening, the same exact type of transatlantic, transnational conference was happening of separatists and secessionists in Moscow, many of whom are also on the far right from places like Spain, like Italy, mm -hmm. including Texas secessionists flying over to Russia to coordinate hmm. with all these other separatists organized out of Moscow. What happens if we ignore Putin's role as a global leader for white Christian nationalism? I do want to encourage 
listeners to maybe broaden their aperture about what potential outcomes we may be facing later this decade. I'm not saying anything like this is going to happen during the midterm. It's not going to happen in the run-up to the next election. But this is a period of drastic change coming ahead of us. Any number of outcomes is possible. I'm not at all saying that this white Christian nationalistic outcome is the one that's staring us in the face, but there's certainly a possibility in which, say, Joe Biden runs again in 2024, wins again, Donald Trump refuses to concede, and we see an expansion of the January 6th type violence. And what flows from that, I have no idea. Thanks, Casey. (laughs) Yeah, Brooke, sorry that was a depressing answer at the end. (laughs) Casey Michelle is a writer and investigative journalist and the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. Brooks spoke to him two years ago at the outset of the war in Ukraine. Tune into this week's big show. We're going to be exploring the accusations of bias in the media when it comes to covering the war in Gaza. I'm Michael Owinger. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.